Uh, Tonight in your Bibles, congregation, uh, we would ask that you turn to Micah chapter 6 in your pew Bible. You can find that on page 1075. For a bit of context sake, we'll read the chapter in its entirety, but then we'll be focusing this evening especially upon the section that is contained in verses 1 through 8. So we read from Micah 6, focusing especially upon verses 1 through 8, and hear now together the reading of the Word of God. Hear now what the Lord says, Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. From Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The Lord's voice cries to the city, Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod, who has appointed it? And there yet are there yet the treasures of wickedness and the house of the wicked and the short measure that is an abomination? Shall I count pure those with the wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights? For her rich men are full of violence, her inhabitants have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away, but shall not save them. And what you do rescue I will give over to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread the olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. And make sweet wine, but not drink wine. For the statues of Omri are kept, and the works of Ahab's house are done, and you walk in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation, and your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore you shall bear the reproach of my people. Thus far the reading of the word of the Lord this evening. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, courtrooms are typically very solemn assemblies. Uh, I want to assure you that I have very limited experience in courtroom settings. I think I've only sat in on one or two rather routine courtroom settings dealing with a personal estate. But even there, there was a certain solemnity to the setting of even an earthly court. And we know that earthly courts, uh, they are not perfect, they are not infinite, But the solemnity of the courtroom setting is even 
announced as the judge enters the courtroom setting and the cry goes out, all rise for the honorable, whoever the honorable may be. Even though that honorable man or woman behind the bench perhaps even is not that honorable. But if you take the solemnity of an earthly courtroom setting and now magnify that an infinite fold, now the judge is not a mere man or woman. The judge is Almighty God. God enters into his courtroom. And as it were, the prophets, they come to Israel and they pronounce, All rise! The King of kings and the Lord of lords, God Almighty, is in his court. Imagine something of that solemnity. That's what we have ultimately in our text in verses 1 through 8 of Micah 6. As one commentator notes, this text records a judicial contest between the Lord and his people. Or as we have put for a theme for tonight, the Lord sues the people of Israel. And again, there should be a measure of shock even as we hear that theme. The Lord brings a lawsuit against his own people that demands further consideration, and we hope to follow our text by noticing, first of all, the setting of the lawsuit, and then Secondly, the argument in the lawsuit, and then thirdly, the verdict to the lawsuit. So the Lord sues the people of Israel, the setting, the argument, and the verdict connected to this lawsuit. First of all, the setting of the lawsuit is a courtroom covenantal setting. Uh, Notice verse 1 as it imitates, you might say, the judicial language, uh, arise, plead. It's almost as if the Lord is standing in his holy court, and he turns to the defendants, that is the people of Israel, especially the people of Judah, and he says, okay, now arise and present your case before the bar of justice. Stand in the midst of this courtroom setting and make your defense. Uh, Verse 2, the Lord goes on, and he says, hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint. And so while the Lord is in the midst of his holy temple, as judge, notice that he is also there as what we today would term as the prosecuting attorney. And this also heightens the solemnity. The Lord is not only the judge in his infinite holiness, but the Lord is also the prosecuting attorney who is going to bring a complaint. Verse 2, the Second part of it, for the Lord has a complaint. Now, this is not just a minor complaint. This is not just like we might say, well, you know, the temperature in the room is not what I desire. I wish it could be a couple of degrees warmer or a couple degrees colder. This is not a complaint as, you know, well, uh, that meal didn't quite satisfy my cravings or my taste. You know, this word complaint means that the Lord has a lawsuit, that a violation has occurred. And that the Lord is now presenting himself in the presence of his own court to deal with the sins and the rebellion of his covenantal people. 
how solemn it is to hear the Lord speak these words, that He has a complaint against His people. That the Lord has a complaint against His church. Now as the context shows, the complaint was that many in the nation of Judah had fallen into a certain sort of covenantal presumption. They had boasted that we are the people of the Lord. And yes, maybe the northern tribes, maybe they have been carried off through apostasy into exile, but the southern tribes had the spirit of boasting in themselves all the while injustice characterized their everyday interaction one with another. They had their false measurements. They had their social injustice but they hid all of that behind this cloak of pretended piety and pretended holiness. But the Lord sees right through it. Uh, the Lord ultimately is able to measure every measuring scale. The Lord is able to discern every transaction that went on in the communities of Judah. And the Lord saw through that presumption, and He says, I have a complaint and that presents us with the question, we just ask it and we leave it to our own souls to wrestle with the answer, does the Lord perhaps have a complaint against us? Are we, to some measure, guilty of a covenantal presumption? A boasting that we are the people of God? Well, unjust business practices characterize our weekly lives. Well, we exploit and take advantage of our fellow man. Well, we perhaps hide sin in the secret recesses of our heart. If so, then the Lord says tonight, I have a complaint. I have a complaint against my own people. Notice verse 3's reference to my people. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? That's the covenant setting. This, this again, this is not the Lord speaking to the Philistines or the Assyrians or the Babylonians, but to the covenant people and, and the use of the word Lord and the use of my people, uh, it's, it's these golden strands of covenant theology. And, and the Lord says, my people that I have redeemed. Now he's speaking of the covenant in the external, broad sense of the word. But these are the people that the Lord had brought up out of bondage, who had delivered them, and he had established with Abraham. Uh, and then also with, with David, this covenant, and this covenant was a, a bond, a bond of fellowship, a bond that included promises and obligations. And the Lord, He continues to extend His covenant from one generation to another generation. And so for many of us, most of us, indeed maybe all of us, we have had the wonderful privilege of being born to Christian parents and being baptized into the covenant of grace and having all of the privileges that went along with such a birth and such an upbringing, that we received faithful instruction from our youngest and tenderest days in the redemptive work of God. 
We had ministers, we had elders, we had fathers, we had mothers, maybe even grandfathers, grandmothers, great-grandparents who instructed us in what the Lord had done and in what the Lord had promised and what our response was supposed to be in reaction to what the Lord had done. In all parts, rather in a covenant there are two parts. There is the part that the Lord makes where He promises, I will be your God, And then there is the solemn obligation on the part of those whom the Lord establishes His covenant with, and we will be your people. And so the Lord comes and He says, O my people, in verse 3, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Notice again that courtroom language. So it's now as if the covenant people... Judah, but also by application, the covenant community today, it's now as if they are put into the witness stand. And the Lord, as judge and as prosecuting attorney, looks at Judah and says, Testify. Tell me, what have I done? And you'll notice the answer as it comes and what we consider in our second point, the argument in the lawsuit. The Lord speaks in His holiness and in His righteousness, and He says, How have I moved you to a life of ingratitude? You see, that's the charge. The Lord is charging His covenant people with unfaithfulness. But as he puts them on the witness stand, he presses the question to them, what have I, the Lord your God, done that you have responded in unfaithfulness, in impenitence, in hypocrisy, and in covenantal presumption? And then the Lord goes on uh, in verse 4, in verse 5, And he presents the evidence of what he has done. He says, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I sovereignly redeemed you. I delivered you when no one else could ever deliver you. I delivered you by a strong and an outstretched arm. I worked miracles and I worked wonders on your behalf. I parted seas. I I sustained you in the wilderness wanderings. I fed you. I gave you water to drink. When there was no water. And I brought you into a good land that flows with milk and honey, but a land that was filled with enemies greater than you were. Nevertheless, I displaced those enemies. And I planted you here in a good land, and I blessed you with every blessing imaginable. And the Lord has done that for for you and for me also. The Lord gave us and continues to give us faithful instruction, not perfect instruction, but faithful instruction. And, and so the boys and girls, they, they can testify. Yes, my Sunday school teacher, my, my catechism teacher, my, my mom and my dad, they, they tell me who Jesus Christ is. And they tell me what Jesus Christ has done. They tell me that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save me from my sins. And the minister, he joins with 
the catechism and the Sunday school teachers and the parents and the grandparents. And he also tells me that if I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that I will be saved. And the Lord continues, and he says in verse 5, O my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled. And this demands that we at least cross-reference one passage back to Numbers 22. Perhaps some of us remember this whole narrative quite well, but for the rest of us, we just refresh our memories from Numbers 22 to 24, but especially if we look at Numbers 23, verse 11 and 12. Here, Balak said to Balaam, "'What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies.'" Balak was a wicked king who hated the covenant people of God, and he sought to bring a curse upon the covenant people of God. He sought to bring a curse upon Israel. He sought to destroy Israel, and so he hired Balaam, a prophet, and he sought four times to entice Balaam by the way of all sorts of monetary gifts and promises to bring a curse upon the people of Israel. And he says to Balaam, upon attempt after attempt that has failed, I took you to curse my enemies, and look, you have blessed them bountifully. So he answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak what the Lord has put in my mouth? Balaam says back to Balak, I can only say that which the Lord gives me to speak. And now I find this it reflects, really, uh, the baptism form, and, and maybe the language goes back to an older form. There, there's no implications. I'm not trying to imply anything about the older form versus the newer form. But the, the promise is, is that God will avert all evil or turn it to our profit. God makes a promise to His covenant people that He will avert all evil or turn it to our profit. And so do you see what happens? The wicked king, Balak, says, I am going to curse the people of God. Balaam, come, I've got some money. You carry it out for me. But the Lord says, no. Balaam, you are not going to curse my people. I'm going to turn it around so that you, having been hired to curse my people, will actually bless my people. And it goes on and on. You can read the narrative perhaps tonight at your leisure. Uh, but that's the historical narrative that the Lord presents as evidence of His faithfulness and of His goodness and of His grace and of His mercy. Oh, my people, remember, Balak, he wanted to curse you, but I averted it, and I turned it to your prophet so that the one who wanted to curse you actually found himself constrained and bound so that he had to bless you. And all of this evidence is brought forth. And notice at the end of verse 5, uh, the Lord as both judge and as prosecuting attorney says, all of this I present as evidence that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. The Lord is righteous in and of himself being characterized by an absolute moral purity, but the Lord is righteous in all of His dealings. The Lord is righteous in everything that He has done for us, to us, in regards to us. 
And so when the Lord comes and says, oh my people, what have I done to you and how have I wearied you? Testify now against me. Uh, The mouths of people are stopped. Ultimately, the Lord has not offended us in any way. He has been righteous. He has been good. We have received from His hand grace and mercy. He has withheld the deserved judgment, and He has poured forth undeserved blessing. And what this argument does is it heightens and it highlights the guilt and the ingratitude of the apostate nation of Judah. In essence, the Lord says, I have done everything for you, and still you wander away from me. Still you go after the idols of the surrounding nations. And this word, this word that the Lord says, it, it demands of us to reflect how have we responded to the work of the Lord, and it especially presses us upon individuals who might be characterized as covenant wanderers or covenant breakers. I know I know that you might say, well, we're all here at church. We're all listening to the Word. Typically, the covenant wanderers are not, and the covenant breakers are not. In reply, I simply say two things. First of all, perhaps, perhaps someone sits here tonight clothed with hypocrisy. Someone who's characterized by covenantal presumption You say all the right things. You have the right look. You have the right answers. But perhaps in your heart there is habitual sin. A life of immorality. And maybe no one knows it but you and the Lord. To you the Lord says, what have I done? Perhaps these words here through some providential means, the radio or the internet, the ears of someone who once sat underneath the faithful preaching of the Word, someone whose forehead was baptized, someone who went to catechism class, someone who had godly parents, not perfect parents, but godly parents, someone who was taught the way of salvation, maybe even someone who once made profession of faith. And now they're wandering like the prodigal son. They're out tonight or in these weeks or in these months or in these years, and they're there in the pig pen of unbelief, maybe gross immorality, And maybe you hear these words and you come to your senses. Because the Lord says to you, what have I done to you? I gave you Christian parents. I gave you instruction in the way of life everlasting. I promised that I would be your God and that you would be my people. But you have forsaken me. And the Lord asks of you, demands of you, present the evidence. 
How have I offended? How have I wronged? And, and, and now, finally, in our text, the accused begin to speak in verse 6. Well, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? And you see, that brings us into our third point here, the verdict to the lawsuit. The Lord is righteous. He's in the right. He's the holy party. He's, if we want to say, uh, the innocent party. There, there's no fault in the Lord. There's no blame to be found in the Lord. Now, oftentimes, covenant wanderers, covenant breakers, they love to clamor about everything that they perceive that was wrong. And maybe they have a long list of excuses. Well, this was wrong with my upbringing, and that was wrong with my upbringing. But at the end of the day, the Lord has been nothing but good. And so now the covenant violator, Judah, they begin to say, well, well, how shall I appear before the Lord? How shall I bow myself before the Most High God? And this isn't always the answer. What can I do? What can I do? How, how can I regain the favor of God? Does, does He want my first fruits? Does He, does he want an endless line of sacrificial uh, animals? Does he want my firstborn? And there already is a hint to what lies in the closing of the prophecy of Micah. It's not our firstborn that will make atonement. No, it is the firstborn Son of God, Jesus Christ, who alone makes the atonement to bring about the means of reconciliation. And so it's not what we do, it's what God has done in and through Jesus Christ but then it's our response to what he has done in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all of these, shall I do this? Shall I do that? Shall I do this? Is answered by the rebuttal of the Lord. No. He has shown you, O man. And you can almost notice in the, the language that there is a heightened intensity. The, the Lord goes from verse 1, Arise, plead your case. The mountains are here as witnesses. And just think about that for a moment. Uh, the mountains, of course, are impersonal objects, but now they're personified as witnesses. And you can think of the, the mountains, the context in which we live our life, and, and think about how dreadful, how absolutely dreadful for a covenant violator, a covenant breaker, to stand before Almighty God. And, and as if the Lord could say, let the halls and the, the walls of your home testify. Have I not told you the way of salvation? Imagine for a moment if a pew, a pew within the church building in which a covenant breaker sat all the days of their life in their infancy and in their youth and in their teenage years. Imagine if those pews would testify. Oh, the many a sermon that we heard. Imagine if a, a pulpit could testify. And the pulpit would say, Men stood behind me, men who, yes, were imperfect, but men, nevertheless, who proclaimed the way of salvation and who extolled the work of God. And so the individual is left speechless. The Lord says, no, not burnt offerings, not calves, not thousands of rams, not rivers of oil, not your firstborn, not the fruit of your body. 
Well, why then did the Lord command all of these sacrifices? Not, of course, the firstborn child, but why did the Lord command uh, the calves and the rams and the oil? Because that was to be an expression of a repentant and believing heart. Uh, You can think, perhaps, uh, of what is stated in Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. So there's no amount of money that can be given to appease for the social injustice that Judah was engaged in. It's not as if you can short your neighbor out, you know, 100 rams and a business transaction and then bring 10 of them to the Lord and that that somehow makes things fair. It's a matter of the heart. And this is not an obscure matter. Verse 8, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? It's very simple. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. But isn't this moralism? Isn't this works righteousness? No, because it is to be the expression of the heart that is contrite, that is broken, that is exercised in repentance and in faith. The sincere child of God, the sincere covenant child, is to be the one who does justice or who upholds that which is right out of love for God and out of love for the fellow man, not as a legalistic, moralistic way to appease the Father, but out of the exercise of faith come forth these fruits of faith. And, and, I, and, I, and I well know that the whole term covenant faithfulness has been hijacked by false teachings uh, and, and by heresies, but the term in and of itself is not necessarily unorthodox. Covenant faithfulness just simply refers to the life that we live in response to God's grace, the presentation of our entire beings as spiritual sacrifices. What does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to walk in covenant faithfulness, not to earn merit, salvation, but because of the reality of that redemption. And we ought not miss that when we read the Ten Commandments on Sunday morning, That they all flow out of that preface where the Lord says, I am the Lord your God. I have redeemed you. And that redemption, of course, includes justification, but it also includes sanctification. It also includes freedom from the bondage of sin. We are redeemed not because of good works, but we are redeemed unto good works. So what does the Lord require of His church? What does the Lord require of His covenant people? To do justly also within our social interactions. And not only to do justly, to love mercy. To love mercy or loving kindness, again in the sense of covenantal, faithful loyalty to God and to neighbor. And it's not just to do mercy, but to love mercy. And now, especially in our context, we speak much of grace and of mercy. We hear those words over and over and over, 
We could ask ourselves, do we understand what those words mean? And maybe it's an oversimplification, uh, but grace is when we receive something from God that we do not deserve, and mercy is when we do not receive that which we do deserve. And God calls upon His people, and He says, this is what I require of you, that you, having received mercy, also then love mercy. May I ask you, do you love mercy? Do you love mercy out of the recognition that that's what you need? Mercy from God. And do you love mercy in the sense that knowing that you have received mercy, do you then love to show mercy? Or are you one who thrives on demanding an exact retribution for every offense? We do well then to remember the parable that Jesus Christ told of the man who was forgiven much by a king and then went out and laid upon his fellow servant by the throat and said, pay me those few sins that you owe. You think that man understood mercy? No. Do you think that that man loved mercy? No. He had no concept of mercy. And he was bound hand and foot and thrown into prison until he paid the last of that which he owed, an impossible task. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the covenant people of God, we, we must be a people who love mercy. To do justly, to love mercy. And then you might say this is all summarized by walking humbly with your God. What does the Lord require? A contrite spirit. A contrite spirit that is humbled before the face of a holy God. A contrite spirit uh, that displays itself by a walk, and that characterizes the entirety of our life. The Lord simply requires you to walk humbly with your God, humbly in the sense of faith and humbly in the sense of repentance, not with arrogance, not with self-reliance, not with a pharisaical pride. I can't help but go to another parable that Jesus Christ told of two men who entered into the temple. Two men who presented themselves in the presence of the Lord. And as you examine the actions of those two men, it becomes very quickly evident which man was walking humbly with his God and which man was filled with pharisaical pride. The one man, he went right up to the front and he lifted his eyes up to the heavens and he began to list all of his credentials. Why do I not do this and do I not do that? And to that the Lord in essence says, are you going to come before me with burnt offerings and with calves, with thousands of rivers of oil? Are you going to come before me with all that you do, with all of your religiosity? Are you really going to make a list and present it to me as evidence? The other man stood afar off and just simply said, and what did he say? God, be merciful to me. You see, he was a man who loved mercy because he knew he needed mercy. And because he needed mercy, he presented himself in the presence of God humbly. And he asked God, be merciful to me, a sinner, the sinner. One man went home justified. 
by himself. The other man went home justified by God. Well, the Pharisee left thinking that he had just justified himself by all of his credentials. In essence, the Pharisee said, look at all of the burnt offerings, look at all of the calves, look at all of the rams, look at all the rivers of oil that I have presented to you. And the Lord said, that's not what I require. I require humility. Humility that seeks mercy. Humility that loves justice. The other man said, I am the sinner. I come humbly. I seek mercy. I long to do justice. And that man went home justified. You and I, as parties in a covenant relationship with the Lord, are called to that action. It's very, very simple. What does the Lord require of us? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. So that the Lord will not have to say to us, I have a complaint against you. What have I done? Because those are the words, verse 3, O my people, what have I done to you and how have I wearied you? And the answer is in no way. The Lord has been nothing but good. He has been nothing but gracious. He has been nothing but merciful. And his requirements are, are not extreme. You think of the world religions, and you think of the long list, everything uh, that the Muslim has to do, everything that the Jew has to do, everything that the follower of Buddha has to do. But what does the one true God require of you and of me? Humility of heart, a desire for mercy, and a love for justice. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our God. We do recognize that we are also characterized by some degree of ingratitude, and at times we grumble and complain. And so we thank you for giving us a picture into this courtroom setting where you put your people on the stand and you come and you say, what is the complaint? We testify, Lord, that you are good, that you are filled with grace and mercy towards us. And we ask that by the work of the Holy Spirit, the observation of this courtroom setting would produce humility within our hearts, a humility that then seeks grace and mercy in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.